What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Bernie's foreign policy. In 2016, he ran on domestic issues almost exclusively. This time around, if he runs, and it looks like he will, he's going to say more about foreign policy. A lot more. David Cleon will explain. Also, peace in Afghanistan? Trump says it's close. And our Anthony Lowenstein says it will bring massive corruption around mining the minerals of that country. But first, Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, free college tuition, a $15 minimum wage. And how about adding daycare for all to the progressive agenda? That's Katha Pollitt's proposal. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation, Her most recent book is Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. We reached her today in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, on Sunday, the New York Times put you on the front page of their opinion section with a piece arguing for universal daycare. That would help a lot of people. How many people are we talking about here, and who are they? Well, 86% of women between the ages of 40 and 44, which is kind of the, the limit, uh, have kids. So really the vast majority of women do have children. And child care is expensive. How, how expensive is it these days? Well, this is so fascinating. Uh, child care is as expensive as college. According to the people at the Economic Policy Institute, in Alabama, which is a very low-income state, it costs $5,637 a year for an infant and an only slightly less daunting $4,871 for a four-year-old. And that is only a third less than the cost of in-state tuition at a four-year college. Um, and you can just go through the tables, and it's pretty much the same. For example, New York, my state, $14,144, or double the cost of a year of college. So you can see that it's re- uh, this is why... 
uh, only a small minority of families can find childcare affordable. And that means affordable means they pay 10% or less of their income for it. Of course, people don't have to spend a lot of money on childcare. Maybe the grandmother can take care of the kid, or maybe a neighbor will do it for a few bucks. Yeah, well, grandma, she's, uh, she's, she's great if you've got one and she wants to do this. But, you know, the way things are these days, um, grandma might still be working, or grandma might be taking care of great-grandma. So <laughs> it's, it's not something you can count on, but very, you know, good luck to you if you have one. There's some family daycare that is great. I, my daughter was in family daycare with a person in the neighborhood who was wonderful, and she had all the certificates you need, and she was very knowledgeable about childcare, and she had a uh, a whole room dedicated to her little in-home daycare. But you might get someone who is much less good, and who just puts the kid in front of TV, and who feeds them not uh, healthy food and who doesn't, doesn't, most important, doesn't really know what to do in a medical emergency. I mean, every year a couple of kids die in this kind of care. And you say the child care crisis has a huge effect on women. Tell us about that. When women can't find child care, affordable child care, they tend to drop out of the workforce. And this is one reason why the rate of women participating in the workforce is, has stagnated. Another thing that happens is that it's so expensive that a woman thinks, oh, my God, I'm spending all my, all my salary on childcare. That doesn't make any sense. And here I want to say, you know, I know this is a little bit abstract of a point, but the truth is that the childcare payments are also the father's responsibility. And it's really wrong to count childcare solely against the woman's income as if she has to find a substitute for herself. But that is the way a lot of people think about it. But the other thing is that a woman might think, oh, I should quit my job. And maybe that makes sense immediately. But the effects of staying out of the workforce for a considerable time never go away. It lowers your Social Security payments. It makes it harder for you to get your next job. It means your skills are rusted, you lose contacts. And these days, you know, people don't talk about this so much, but these days with most mothers, even of small children in the workforce, being one who stays at home is a much more isolating experience than it was when everybody was staying at home. And you had, you know, you could go over to your friend's house. So I think there are a lot of reasons why women want to stay in the workforce and cannot do so because of the dearth of affordable quality childcare. You know, everything that we're talking about here is not exactly new. Hasn't Congress ever thought about this before? Has Congress ever taken up government funding for childcare at, at some point? Well, it's funny you should ask that. In 1971, President Nixon vetoed a very popular bipartisan bill to create the um, Comprehensive Child Development Act. And he said it committed the vast moral authority of the national government to the side of communal approaches to child-rearing. And, you know, you see the little uh, appeal to anti-communism there. Yeah. Pat Buchanan apparently wanted the phrase to be the Sovietization of American <laughs> children. Um, but I guess Nixon drew the line at that. And that was, that was it. That was the end of the whole discussion. And that was uh, almost 50 years ago. Well, if progressives were to take up your proposal of daycare for all, 
it seems like at least some of the white working class people who voted for Trump could probably use help with child care. Yes, I think a lot of them can. I think those are the ones who are stuck in that valley of needing to work and not being able to work. And also, there are a lot of single mothers now. There are a lot of single mothers in the white working class, as well as the black working, I mean, everywhere. But you'd think that this would, you know, to the waitress mom, remember the waitress mom who was supposed to be, you know, a big political desiderata a couple of years ago. Uh, I think this would appeal to them. And, you know, childcare is also, it's good for everybody. It's one of these things that's good for everybody. And it would provide a lot of jobs. That's another thing. It would provide a lot of jobs for people who want to work and who have those skills. And there's just no downside to it at all, except, of course, it would cost a lot of money. After the New York Times published your piece on the uh, cover of the Sunday Opinion section, almost a thousand people commented before comments were closed. Let me ask you about a couple of the most interesting. One person wrote, Too often, what is couched as empowering women is really powering the economy. We want everybody into the workforce now, even if you just gave birth eight weeks ago. Whatever happened to choice, including the legitimate choice of caring for your children yourself? How about a subsidy for that, if we're going to talk about subsidies? Well, first of all, this business about eight weeks, going back to work eight weeks after giving birth, that's horrible. And that's why the same people who support a system of federally funded daycare also support paid parental leave. To say that there should be child care available to all doesn't mean you have to do it. If you want to stay home, you are welcome to do that. Interestingly enough, in Scandinavia, where they do the most with child care, it is pretty usual for women to go back to work. In France, the child care system is so popular that even women who stay home use it. Because just because you stay home doesn't mean you want to mind your child 24-7. Yeah. Um, and it, it becomes, it, it's a socialization thing for kids, and it's fun for them, et cetera, et cetera. In France, interestingly enough, daycare workers and childcare workers are paid like teachers, and they're trained like teachers. It is a very respected occupation. It's not the way it is here, where everything having to do with children is seen as second-rate and terrible. Another comment at the New York Times from a man named Tony Brzezinski. Here's a thought. Plan how you're going to take care of your family before you have children. Understand that you won't be going out to dinner three times a week because children cost money. Understand that you are going to live on a shoestring budget for a long time when you have kids. Plan your family. The government cannot solve every issue. Well, right. Tony sounds like he's pretty bitter. (laughs) About something. In fact, most people do plan their families. Most people have very small families now. Sometimes children are born who weren't planned. Uh, Nothing is, no method of birth control is perfect, and there will always be children who are unplanned but much loved when they arrive. Okay, here's another comment. I am a retiree who lives on a fixed income. Our town in New Jersey recently voted for free daycare, which resulted in a dramatic increase in the property tax. The young professionals who recently moved to our town and who make 150k to 200k managed to push the bill through. If you as a senior object, you are labeled as someone who is against children. That is why liberal Democrats who have taken over the party will continue to drive older voters away into the hands of the pro-capitalist Republicans. 
No, I, I don't like it when young and old are pitted against each other because we're really all in this society together. How would it be if young people said, well, Social Security, why should old people get that? Or Medicare, why should they get that? I mean, people have different needs at different times in their lives, and the same people who need daycare now will need uh, services for old pe- older people in the future, and vice versa. You know, once the system of childcare is there, tomorrow's old people will benefit from it today when they're when they're younger. So, I mean, I think that's a much better way to think of societies and then chopping it up into little little slivers and having everybody fight it out. Okay, one more comment that the New York Times published. Quote, I was a daycare inspector for several years in the most affluent part of the state, and I did not encounter a single daycare center that I'd have put my own child in. Calling for high-quality daycare is easier said than done. My definition of high-quality daycare includes consistency of the caregiver year-to-year, low ratios, requirements for more time outdoors, and not just completely artificial settings. High-quality daycare is high cost, close quote. Yeah, it is, and that's why we, we need to pay for it. And that's what they do in France and Scandinavia and in some other places that have it. Now, in America... You know, we don't even have high-quality public school for everybody. I mean, I wonder how this guy feel, would feel if he went into, you know, a local kindergarten or a local elementary school, let alone a local high school. So I, I think we need to, there's a broader issue about, how, about care and about taking seriously what we have to spend to provide quality care for everyone at every stage of life. But instead, we're going to build a wall. So we don't have to think about that. Do you have any idea who might be the first of our progressive presidential candidates to adopt the demand for universal child care? We have Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, maybe even a man, maybe Bernie? Well, Bernie did have this on his long list of wonderful things. I think maybe maybe this is an issue whose time has come. Katha Pollitt, she wrote about universal child care for the New York Times Sunday opinion section. They put her on the cover. Thank you, Katha. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Rumor has it that Bernie will run again. A recent poll shows him beating Trump by 10 points. And another poll among Democrats shows that he comes in second to Joe Biden. In 2016, he ran mostly on domestic issues. This time around, he's going to say more about foreign policy. For a report, we turn to David Cleon. He writes for the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Nation. We reached him today in Brooklyn. David, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me again. Well, recently, in December, Bernie co-sponsored the Senate resolution to cut off all U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's military campaign in Yemen. It passed with the votes of 56 senators. For that and other foreign policy issues, Bernie is relying on the advice of a guy I had never heard of until I saw your cover story in the new issue of The Nation. His name is Matt Duss. Who is Matt Duss? Where does he come from? Well, it's actually a pretty complicated answer to that question. Short, Matt Duss is Bernie's foreign policy advisor. 
He's only been working for Bernie for about two years now. Before that, his longest gig, I guess, was the national security editor for Think Progress, which is the uh, blog affiliated with the Center for American Progress, or CAP. He did that from 2008 to 2014. I learned from your piece that Matt Dussa's background includes the fact that he studied Arabic and written about Shiite political leaders in Iraq. How did he get interested in the Muslim world? When he was in high school, he had a friend uh, he played in a band with who was Iraqi-American. At the time of the first Gulf War, Matt's friend had had family in both the Iraqi and U.S. militaries and was wow. and his whole family, which which Dust was close with, was very um, you know understandably freaked out when we went to war with Saddam Hussein the first time. It really didn't happen until I guess he was about 28 when he went to a friend's wedding in Istanbul. Dust gave a very almost lyrical description of first hearing the morning call to prayer. He was in Istanbul, kind of ricocheting out across the, the urban landscape, and he said it just had a transformative effect on him. Now, Duff is of an evangelical Christian background, so it really was this kind of firsthand exposure, but it kind of lit a fire under him. And, and then that was one year before 9-11. So after the 9-11 attacks, I think he, he realized this wasn't just something he'd gotten really passionate about and started reading a lot about but something he might devote his life to, understanding the Muslim world better and trying to mitigate misunderstandings between the U.S. and the Muslim world. You know, one, one interesting thing about Duff is, is, and that differentiates him from a lot of people in Washington, is that uh, he didn't graduate college until he was 31. And that was largely in, in reaction, I think, to this series of events. That, that was when he finally realized what he wanted to study and what he wanted to do with his life. And another part of Matt Dussa's background, uh, not so long ago, he was accused by pro-Israel people of anti-Semitism. Big topic in the news this week. What's the story there, and what does he say about it? He denies that. I have, having talked to Dussa a lot and having followed his writings for years, I certainly do not believe he is an anti-Semite. He finds it hurtful. But, you know, if you look at the attacks on him, they've, they've come from the same group of people who kind of have a history of bad faith attacks, calling progressives and critics of Israel anti-Semites or implying it. You know, these are figures affiliated with APAC or the Neoconservative Foundation for Defense of Democracies or the Washington Free Beacon, which is basically a oppo rag in D.C. run by neocons. And every time, all they're really working off of is that Matt and his father and brother, all of whom have done international Christian relief work, including in the West Bank, all they're really going off of is that the Dushes uh, have been very critical of the occupation, which uh, I certainly don't think makes someone an anti-Semite. And how did he get to work for Bernie? I I don't know exactly who reached out. We didn't discuss that. Um, But I know when it happened, which is... uh, Right, basically right after the 2016 election. Um, and I, I don't think it would have happened had the 2016 election gone the way everyone expected that it would. When Bernie ran in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, you know, it was a protest campaign focused on domestic issues. Bernie had some track record on foreign policy. He was, there was a debate where he spoke up for the Palestinians. He criticized Henry Kissinger. 
you know, he had some connection to the Sandinistas, I think, back when he was mayor of Burlington. But foreign policy was never his big thing, and he wasn't running to lay out a vision on that. Uh, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of foreign policy experts, a lot of progressive activists were not thrilled with the Clinton-Sanders choice when it came to foreign policy because she was seen by a lot of people, including me, as, as very hawkish. And Sanders was seen as uh, just not very interested in the subject. Uh, I should say that Duff denies that Sanders is not interested in foreign policy and denies that. And, and he was quite um, insistent about this throughout the time I talked to him, that he, he didn't just give Bernie a brain transplant or whatever, like Bernie has always cared about this. But I do think it's fair to say that um, they hired Duff, I think, to make Bernie more of a player on foreign policy in the Senate and also possibly in preparation for another presidential run. And to that end, Bernie has at least one really huge accomplishment, which Duff is widely seen as being the driver behind, which is uh, this, this movement to end our support for the Saudi war in Yemen. Beyond the Saudi war in Yemen, what other foreign policy issues is Bernie raising now? What's likely to be at the top of his list if he runs again this year? In, in speeches that he gave, and that Matt Duff definitely had a role in drafting in late 2017 and then again in late 2018, Bernie laid out a real vision for, for what foreign policy should be across a range of, of areas, which is not only something he didn't really do in uh, 2016, but it's also something that you could argue no major Democrat has done in a very long time. That the, the vision that he, he laid out is centered around oligarchy and kleptocracy, and they're linked to authoritarianism. And he uses this to kind of draw kind of a through line from everyone from Donald Trump to Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil, to uh, Putin in Russia, obviously, uh, to the Gulf monarchies and, and more. And, you know, his rhetoric of, of the 1% and inequality and corporate elites and corruption, which he's used so effectively in the U.S., uh, he's basically globalizing that, that approach. But also Bernie has talked about starting a, a progressive international movement to kind of counter the right-wing populist movements that we see people like Steve Bannon trying to build across borders. And the, the major other person who's been talking about this, actually, uh, including with Bernie, is Yanis Varoufakis, the former finance minister of Greece. Both of them are basically trying to forge an alternative because it, it feels like we've you know, you had the era of communism versus the free world or whatever uh, that ended. And then you had this period of neoliberal hegemony. And now you're seeing neoliberal hegemony get challenged by the populist nationalist right. But what we haven't really seen, and we're just starting to see the beginnings of, is a like an organized, coherent, progressive international alternative to neoliberalism. And Bernie is the first person to even attempt to articulate that in, in in the Democratic parties. And I should say also, Dust, uh, one of his earliest um, forays into political act activity was when he was living in Seattle uh, in the late 90s, and he got involved in anti-globalization activism. So notwithstanding his heavy focus on the Middle East, he does have some, some roots on this issue. Last question. Assuming Bernie runs, what do you think he might say about Israel and the Palestinians and the occupation and APAC? 
Well, Bernie has already said a lot about these issues, and actually the spectrum of debate has been shifting leftward, uh, and then there's been a furious reaction to it, as we've seen in the last few days with Ilhan Omar. Bernie, though, I think as a result, is not the leftmost wing of, I I guess, uh, the Israel-Palestine discourse right now in the mainstream, and that's actually given him room, I think, to seem a little more mainstream, even though he is the left of the status quo. So what I mean by that is neither Bernie nor Matt Duss has endorsed uh, the BDS movement, which is an increasingly uh, widespread campaign among progressive grassroots activists and a lot of people in DSA and so on, and a lot of Bernie's core supporters. I believe that the two members of the U.S. Congress who do support BDS, the only two, are the two Muslim women who were just sworn in last month, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, both of whom are, are Democrats, and both of whom, especially Omar, have come in for ferocious criticism from the Israel lobby and most of Congress, including, in Omar's case, the Democratic House leadership. Bernie has not gone as far as them. He is the leader, or he is a leader in the minority of Democrats in Congress who uh, who, who have uh, said that BDS should be legal and should not be uh, banned, and there shouldn't be restrictions like not giving federal contracts to uh, people and organizations who participated in BDS. Uh, and he and, and other Democrats running for president have made that case on, on First Amendment grounds, which I personally think are totally unassailable. Like, uh, I don't see how anyone could could uh, support a, law, a bill like that, and as, as, for instance, Chuck Schumer does, and uh, claim to be, you know, a baseline liberal. It, it, it beggars belief. But, um, you know, Bernie has been outspoken on, on behalf of the rights and dignity of the Palestinians, which is something that many leading Democrats have not been. He... Um, clearly associates with people who've been very critical of Israel. I don't think he will flinch from criticizing the Netanyahu government, the occupation, the neocons, or uh, the the various establishment forces uh, that have allied with Israel. But, um, you know, I would be very surprised if, if while running for president, he, he decides to embrace BDS, but who knows? On Monday, uh, I saw, I saw Dust um, on Twitter I think walking a very fine line, he was sticking up for Omar and he was sort of tepidly saying that people in Omar's position, you know, need to be careful about what language they use so that they don't inadvertently invoke, you know, what sound like anti-Semitic tropes. But, but ultimately I think he was on her side and defending her, which is more than you can say of a lot of leading Democrats. And uh, of course, Duff and Bernie Sanders are not precisely the same person, but uh, my my understanding is that their their thinking on these issues is very similar. David Cleon, his article "Who Is Matt Duss?" is on the cover of the new issue of the Nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, David. Great to have you on the show. You're welcome. Donald Trump says he wants to end America's longest war. The one in Afghanistan, where Americans have been fighting since 2001, 14,000 U.S. troops are still there. 
Trump says a peace deal with the Taliban is in the works. It may be signed in April. And his goal seems to be for American corporations to make money in Afghanistan, mostly by mining the country's valuable minerals, a project filled with corruption. For a report, we turn to Anthony Lowenstein. He's a freelance investigative journalist who's written for The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Al Jazeera, The New York Review, and The Nation. His most recent book, Disaster Capitalism, is out now in paperback. We reached him today in East Jerusalem. Anthony Lowenstein, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, you report in The Nation that a minerals rush is already underway in Afghanistan. What are American mining companies and others uh, hoping to mine there? Remind us how we got to this point. In brief, um, the Soviets invaded, of course, in 1979, and they soon realized that there was huge mineral resources under the ground. And most studies that we now have of the Soviet occupation show that, in fact, the Soviets paid for some of that occupation through mineral resources under the ground. Um, of course, that war was disastrous for them. They lost and they got kicked out of the country 10 years later, and that obviously precipitated the end of the Soviet Union. Fast forward to um, October 2001, the US invades, the Taliban's overthrown within three weeks. So fast forward a few more years after that, and the US starts investigating what the Soviets had discovered 30 years before. And they found these maps, which essentially um, gave information about where these resources were kept. And when George W. Bush was president, they made a finding that anywhere between one to three trillion US dollars of resources were under the ground. We're talking about rare earths, copper, gold, lithium, cobalt. And some of those resources are what uh, power our mobile phones, computers, etc. And during the Bush years and the Obama years, the U.S. invested hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to try to kickstart this economy um, by supporting often U.S. companies and others. And not surprisingly, because the country's at war has been for, well, at least since 2001, and in fact, many years before that, not much has really happened. There's been some mining officially. There's been some contracts handed out. The U.S. has put a huge amount of pressure on um, successive Afghan governments to try to give out contracts to particularly U.S. mining companies. The Chinese, for example, in 2007 secured um, a mining contract one hour from Kabul in a place called Logar Province, which I visited a few years ago. It's one of the biggest copper deposits in the world. And yet, despite that contract being signed over 10 years ago, nothing has actually really happened because of violence, corruption, and a range of other reasons. So fast forward now to Trump. Trump comes in, and Trump is, as many listeners will be aware, has such a contradictory view about US foreign wars. On one level, he supports them. On some ways, he doesn't. And he's often argued publicly and privately, from what we understand, that the US should only stay in that country if they can essentially get the resources. As he often has argued about, if the US was going to invade Iraq, we should have taken the oil and similar views about Libya. The Trump administration has been pressuring the Afghan government to give out contracts to a range of American companies to mine these resources. And because the mining industry in Afghanistan is deeply corrupt and incredibly um, insecure because vast parts of the country are controlled by the Taliban or ISIS or other insurgent groups, the idea of a viable mining industry is completely insane. And what's the present state of the war? The truth is that the Taliban have the upper hand. When Trump comes in, there was certainly a push, not just by Trump, but others around him, to potentially end the war. 
potentially. And in the last month, there's been a really, really big initiative by the Trump administration and other people, including the Taliban, to sit down and talk, to have face-to-face talks, both in the Middle East and also in Moscow. Ironically, that Russia is hosting these talks, considering Russia's role in Afghanistan 40-odd years ago. And according to reports, the peace talks are certainly not signed and sealed, but there appears to be some kind of understanding or negotiation towards a possibility of the US apparently pulling out most or all of its forces within 18 or so months and the Taliban assuring the US that they won't allow foreign terror groups like al-Qaeda to be able to plan another 9-11 and that women, for example, will have equal and free rights in an Afghanistan post-US occupation. Now, all that sounds kind of okay, but... Um, there's a thousand other unresolved questions, including, I might add, the mining issue, which is not talked about. Like, what happens to these resources if and when the US pulls out? And that's a really, really worrying question because so much of the violence would be created by an unregulated mining industry. There's a couple of other players here in addition to Trump we need to talk about. One of them is Eric Prince, the Blackwater founder. Uh, He's got a scheme to privatized the Afghan war, which Trump says he's rejected. But you report in The Nation that Eric Prince's goals in Afghanistan are are far more extensive than that. Absolutely. What Prince has been doing for years, and of course, he had the upper hand during the George W. Bush years and during the Obama years, he was less welcomed in Washington because he was, he feared, in fact, being prosecuted by the Obama team, which never actually happened. Trump comes in. His sister, of course, is Betsy DeVos, who was the education secretary under Trump, and he's a very big supporter of the Republican Party. And what Prince really is trying to do, and so far has not convinced Trump apparently to do, is to privatise, as you say, the whole war. He claims that he can win the war against the Taliban with five or 6,000 mercenaries against the Taliban, which is just delusional thinking. But what he's also doing, and he spent some time in Afghanistan in the last six months, to try to get resources that are under the ground, including cobalt and lithium. And he announced, in fact, on January the 1st this year that he is establishing a 500 million US dollar fund to find resources in conflict zones that can be used for electric car batteries. Um, We're talking about countries like Congo and Afghanistan and elsewhere because he believes, with some accuracy probably, that electric cars are the future. But, of course, the resources that go into those electric car batteries are usually found in places like Congo and Afghanistan, such as cobalt. So what's really disturbing is that he is pushing for uh, mining in Afghanistan, getting contracts for some of the most dangerous areas of the country. Now, as far as we know, the Afghan government has not agreed to that. President Ghani, the Afghan president, is opposed to it, but many people in his government support it. And, of course, there's going to be an Afghan presidential election in a few months, and Prince is apparently supporting some of the candidates who are going to be against President Ghani. So Prince really, in some ways, is, I think, imagining a future where Afghanistan becomes an incredibly reliable place for minerals and resources, which may well help his electric car battery fund. But let's not forget one key point. How do you secure those resources in a war zone? Well, we've talked about Trump and Eric Prince and the mining companies and the government in Kabul and the Taliban, the Chinese, the Russians. What about the Afghan people who live in the mining areas? 
Well, the Afghan civilians are really the ones who have been suffering here. And when I was in Afghanistan twice in the last years, I spent a lot of time in these areas where, for example, in the area of Logar province, it's one hour from Kabul. It's where this Chinese-owned mine, this copper mine, INAC, is situated. And these civilians were promised the world in the mid-2000s, um, better schools, better education, better healthcare, roads, a mosque. They got absolutely nothing in short, absolutely nothing. And fast forward to 2018-19, and these people are desperate. They, In fact, when I met them, they were on the verge of joining the insurgency out of sheer frustration and hatred of what was going on in, in their area. This is repeated across the country. And in many areas of Afghanistan, there's illegal mining. Lots of resources are getting out of the country, and they're being... Um, the profits are going to warlords or corrupt Afghan government ministers or Pakistani um, uh, Taliban or a range of other players, Afghan civilians get virtually nothing. And one of the things I looked at in the last sort of five or six years with disaster capitalism, both in a book and a film, is that there's really very, very few countries in the world, if any, in any viable way, particularly poor countries, who can make civilians succeed in a mining industry. Lots of promises are made that we're going to bring resources and money and schools. It's usually all ends in tears for those civilians, and Afghanistan's no different to that. So the promises that are being made now by Eric Prince and a range of other American mining companies and Donald Trump and a lot of others really makes Afghan civilians pretty nervous. Having said all that, many Afghan civilians I know are desperate for peace, not peace at any price and not peace without justice. And one of the really concerning parts, I think, about the current peace talks, just to go back to that briefly, is that the Afghan government's totally excluded from the peace talks. Now, the Afghan government's deeply corrupt and highly, highly problematic on a range of levels. And yet, how do you seriously make a peace deal without the Afghan government, who are, with all their faults, the elected government of the country? A lot of Afghan civilians I speak to are keen on peace, very keen, but they're worried about how this is playing out. But I guess they have to be optimistic because there's not many other options on the table at the moment. Anthony Lowenstein wrote about Afghanistan for The Nation. You can read his report at thenation.com. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. Finally, this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks about Joe Ricketts, whose family owns the Chicago Cubs in Wrigley Field. He was found to have sent racist and Islamophobic emails to his family. Dave asks, what will be the fallout, if any? That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. 
I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.